in the Word. Father God, we are so grateful that we have been able to be reminded of how good you are, how wonderful you are. And Father, now as we look into your Word, may that reminder continue with us as your Holy Spirit teaches us and and leads us and guides us in all truth, God. And I pray that the words that have come out of my mouth would be uh, led by you, guided by you. We're grateful for the power and the wonderful gift that your word is to us. And it's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Well, as I had mentioned last week, uh, we have kind of come to this interesting section in our study in the book of Matthew. And what we've talked about, we said, is that we've come to a part where what Jesus is doing here is he's giving instructions now on a very some amounts, different types of topics and things that he wants to help prepare his disciples for his, their ministry when he's gone. He knows he's leaving soon. So he's trying to get them prepared. Okay, here's what it's going to be like, what you need to know, how you need to act and all that and think when I am gone. So last week, our lesson was about the power of faith. Specifically, remember, we talked about this mustard seed type faith that we have that enables us really to fulfill our mission here. It's not, remember, we talked about it's not the amount of faith, it's the kind of faith um, that we have. Well, this week and the following two sermons after this, I'll preach next week, then David Brickner will be here, and then I'll preach again uh, out of at Matthew 18. What we're going to be talking about here really is all about Christian ethics. Okay, this is what Jesus is kind of focusing on. Christian ethics or qualities which would characterize the relationship that followers of Jesus have with one another. Some of you, obviously, as you've been in church for a while, and when you hear the words Matthew 18, you already know that there's going to be some stuff in there that has to do with how we relate to one another. And Jesus is going to get into that. So, the really, And really the reason that this entire chapter is dedicated to our relationship to one another is because Jesus knows that one of the enemy's absolute favorite tactics in getting us to fall away or to be just complacent or really not to be able to grow in our faith, one of his favorite tactics is by keeping the relationships, the relation, our relationships within the body of Christ from functioning the way they should. We're supposed to function in a very healthy way, and this is what Jesus is going to do to help us see that. We're going to see in these next few sermons the importance of how experiencing healthy and authentic relationship with other followers of Jesus is absolutely vital in order for us to move closer and closer to Christ-likeness. It's absolutely vital. And you're going to see some pretty strong words by Jesus this morning. We're going to see um, that as followers of Jesus, we have been given a tremendous and sacred responsibility towards one another. And this is where these next sermons are going to go. We're going to see that this responsibility, it's no small matter to Jesus. This is a huge deal to him. That's why he spends so much time talking about it. So the question is, what exactly is our responsibility towards one another? What's that supposed to look like? How are we specifically supposed to treat one another in order to spur one another on towards Christ-likeness? What's that, what's that supposed to look like? Lots of these next three sermons are really going to help us with. And really, it all begins with Jesus' disciples asking him a question that actually springs from really their self-seeking ambition and their desire for prominence. This is what springboards this whole thing. Okay, So let me set the scene here first. Remember, Jesus had just finished 
talking about and illustrating to his disciples the importance of being, remember, willing to give up our right to our freedoms and the things that we feel are, are okay in order to do everything possible so as not to be a stumbling block to other people, in order to not do anything that would cause people to go, whoa, 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 wait a second. I can't go pursue this Jesus thing anymore. That, that has gotten in the way. Really, what he talked about, this willingness to have a posture of a servant. Remember, we, looked at, we looked at one of the, in the verses that Paul talked about, talk about willing to, he was willing to be a slave to anybody in order to have people come to Christ. Well, look what happens right on the heels of that amazing lesson about being a servant. Matthew chapter 18, verse 1. Look what we have. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Hello. Who is the greatest in the kingdom? Remember, Jesus had just been repeatedly teaching his disciples about the preeminence of servanthood within the kingdom of heaven. Obviously, these guys had no idea what it really meant for it to have the rule and the reign of God in their hearts and their lives. As we've talked about, that's what the kingdom of heaven is. They have no idea what that's supposed to look like, or they wouldn't have asked this question. It would seem like more like after they'd been with Jesus, they'd been with him almost for three years now. Remember, and they've been hearing all these great sermons. They've been seeing these incredible, incredible miracles happen. They'd even remember they'd been, been given empowered with the power to heal and drive out demons themselves. So what happens, probably these guys must have begun to think that it was about time to establish some uh, hierarchy of importance among us, okay? All right, we got this down. We've been doing some amazing things. All right, let's, let's start thinking, you know, who's, who should be where? And I'm sure a lot of them are thinking, all right, Peter's had a lot of action here. He's walked on the water. He went to Jesus, with Jesus to go on the transfiguration. All right, oh, but let's make sure. It seems, to, it seems like Peter's the guy, but you know what? We're important too. So let's, let's, let's find out what's going on here. Now, if you know, in Mark's gospel, in Mark's gospel, it, it, he talks about how they just prior to this was happening, they had been actually arguing as they've been walking down the road about who was the greatest. So not only were they asking Jesus, they were fighting amongst each other about, you know, I don't know, man, my demon that I did was bigger than yours. You know, I probably, you know, I don't know, I, I got it going on here. So Jesus, you know, that's the cool thing is Jesus doesn't take offense at their question. You know, he's done that before, but he doesn't go, oh, you, you guys, like he did last week. No, this week, he doesn't take any offense at all. At least we don't see that. He simply uses the opportunity to teach this powerful lesson. Look at verse 2. He, just, he doesn't say anything. He says, and calling to him a child, he, he put him in the midst of them. So answering this question about concerning who among them is the greatest in the kingdom, Jesus calls to himself this little child as a visual aid. Because that's what he's so good at. He's so good at doing that kind of thing. And most likely, they say this is probably a very young child, probably like in the toddler uh, type age, Okay. Now, we're going to see from the, the response that Jesus gives here, Jesus begins to first basically tell them that before you guys worry about who's the greatest, before you get on to that whole topic here, who's greatest in the kingdom, you need to first think about what it takes to even be in the kingdom. So he takes them back a step. He moves them back a little bit. Look at verse 3. Look what he says. He says, and he said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, 
you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So here Jesus tells them in order to even get in, to even enter the kingdom of heaven, one must literally change the way, change their course. That's what this means. Change their course in the way that they think and the way that they act and become like a child. It's the same kind of it's the same kind of language, this conversion or rebirth language that Jesus used when he was talking to the Pharisee Nicodemus. Remember Nicodemus, what do I what do I need to do to be saved? He says, you must be born again. This is that same kind of language that Jesus is using here. Now, the assumption here is if it's necessary to enter the kingdom of heaven, what? It's assumed that there must be a time that we've been outside of the kingdom of heaven. That has to be remembered. We've all been outside of the kingdom. That's where it all starts. In speaking to his followers, uh, uh, the followers of Jesus, the Apostle Paul said this in Colossians. He says, once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. Wow. Anybody ever wants to know, hi, I'm pretty good. God's not going to, you know... How, he's, I'm going to be okay when, we, when I get there, the scale will weigh it out a little bit and see <laughs> what it says here. When you're outside of the kingdom, you're alienated and you're an enemy of God. Wow, that's harsh. No middle ground here at all. So at one time, everyone was alienated or an enemy from God. Everyone. Yet the good news is that we know that God desires all people to enter the kingdom of heaven. Remember, again, the Apostle Paul said this about God. He said that he desires that all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. So that's where God's heart is. And really that starts by recognizing our sin and then having a desire to actually turn from it. Then we must recognize that we have no resources on our own, nothing that we've done, no merit, no worthiness of our own or from our character or anything that earns us the entrance into the kingdom of heaven. We need God. We need Jesus 100%. We then confess and submit to the Lord Jesus in our lives. Romans 10, 9, so so familiar verse to many of us. If you confess with your mouth, that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. I just gave you how, what to say to someone who wants to know how to be a Christian. It's really that simple. You don't use my words. <laughs> use your own. But really, this is what entails getting in, even getting into the kingdom. If this hasn't happened, not in. Not even a part of it. You can have a lot of head knowledge, a lot of church experience, But unless this has happened, you aren't even in. So Jesus first tells us in order to be in the kingdom of heaven, a person must turn from their sin towards Jesus as a child. That's what he's saying here, as a child. Now, in many ways, this has to sound absolutely crazy to disciples. We think, oh yeah. But to them, this had to sound insane because in terms of status, in the ancient world, children were the lowest of the low. When it, came to, when it came to status. While, I mean, while families appreciated their children, society merely tolerated them. I think I feel that way a lot of times, but not around any of your kids. But um, <laughs> I think, but really, society was like, okay, until they get some older, really, they're just 
kind of functioning, kind of a nuisance a little bit. They'll, they'll, they'll get to something. Parents love their kids, but in society. So they must have been thinking, you're asking us to be like something that society is saying is way down there and, and doesn't really matter, matter at all. This must have been radical to them. Because what Jesus is doing by telling them to become like children, he's essentially describing what we talked about last week when we talked about that mustard seed faith. Remember, it was characterized by what? It was characterized by humility. Remember, it was humility was the main thing. Humility that is simple and that's trusting and that's helpless, not prideful, not I can take care of this. So that's what he's saying. That's what he wants us to do. I mean, just think of a little child. My grandson was over yesterday, so that was my favorite day of the week, obviously. And, but when kid, little kids, I look at him, he's four years old. He, goes, he doesn't have thoughts of his own greatness. He, I mean, he makes something, he goes, look, Opa, look what I made. He doesn't go, look, Opa, look what I made. I'm awesome, huh? He doesn't, he, doesn't do, he doesn't think about his own greatness, and he doesn't look back at all the things he's accomplished, you know, with glory, all the things that he's done, and go, yeah, look what I can do. Look what I've done. He doesn't do that. He doesn't know to do, oh, he'll get there, but he doesn't know to do that yet. It's his simplicity. That's what it takes to enter the kingdom of heaven, childlike humility, claiming no merit on our own to claim right into entrance at all. So that's how one gets in, okay? That's how you get in the kingdom. Now, Jesus now goes on to tell them the very posture that gets a person in, that he tells them the very posture that got them in is the same posture that makes them truly great. Once that, that's what got you in, but don't stop there. That's a lot of times we do that, don't we? Okay, I need you, Jesus. How many times have we seen people do that? They come to God broken, and then as time goes on, you've seen that transition happen for new believers sometimes. They're just broken. I just want to learn. I just want her to tell me more. After a while, it's like, okay, I think I know now. You know, we kind of get a little savvy, and sometimes that can play against us. He's saying, no, it needs to stay. Look at verse 4. He says, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Once again, to humble oneself like this child is, is really to have this willingness to really have this low, to be accept this low social status that is characterized by the status of a child. That's what he's saying here. So Jesus is saying that the disciples are misguided. They are really missing the mark here in seeking status in order to be great in God's kingdom. If they're wanting to do that, you guys are missing it. You're missing God's heart in this. They should instead assume the position, the position of those that are low in status. Children. Children. He's saying, look at them. Look at this child. Look at him. Learn, watch, watch how he lives. Learn from this child. Aspire to be like this child. So he's saying, okay, to humble yourself means to lower yourself. Now, that doesn't, we're not talking about being a doormat. We're not talking about having, okay, I have a good self-esteem. I better get rid of that. And he's not talking about that. He's talking about lowering yourself in the status, the position we think we have. I like what John, John MacArthur says this. If you came in by humility... Humility is the standard. You came in in humility, and you rise to greatness by going down in humility. Good words. 
One of my favorite passages in the the Bible, Apostle Paul expressed this exact same idea here. And he did it the best, I think, when he wrote to the church in Philippi. Remember in Philippians chapter 2? I think this is probably one of the best. If you want to think, okay, how do I act like a servant? How do I act like a humble child in the kingdom of heaven? Listen to this. My one of my favorites. Don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble, thinking of others as better than yourself. Don't look out for your own interests, but take on interest in others too. You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave. He was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. Therefore, God elevated him. See, down, up. Therefore, God elevated him to the place of highest honor and gave him the name above all names. That the name of G- at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue declared that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, I know this is a very, very familiar verse to many of us who have been in church for a long time, but I think it's easy for us. Our pride, our natural sense of pride invades our life so often. This is the kind of stuff that we need to, these are the kind of passages we need to have pinned up somewhere, posted somewhere, on our dashboard, wherever, to remind us that this is what I want to, this is true greatness. <laughs> to be awesome is this. This is what I need. This is what I need to aspire to. This is what I need to ask God to do in my life so that in turn I will be great in the kingdom. Not because I want the accolades, but I'm knowing that, oh my gosh, what better thing in there is life is to know that we're being who exactly who we should be. And that's what he's saying here. This childlike humility that characterizes greatness in the kingdom of heaven. So that's what it is to characterize those within the kingdom of heaven, okay? This is what characterizes them. Jesus, now what he's going to do is he's going to address how we are expected to treat one another as fellow kingdom citizens. He's got us thinking, he's got the, hopefully getting their minds right. This is the mindset you need to have. Now, don't stop there. This is how you're supposed to treat each other in this. Remember I said at the beginning, Jesus is going to emphasize this because he knows that the enemy will do everything he possibly can to get us to not grow in our faith. And he's going to most of the time use it a lot of times by our relationships, things that are or aren't happening right with, with other believers. So he's going to first, he's going to give us both a positive and negative instructions. First, the positive. Look at verse five. He says, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. Now this word receives or welcomes that some of you have in your Bible, it really is talking about hospitality. Okay. It's this whole idea of being hospitable with kindness and with sympathy. So what he's saying here is whenever we receive or welcome a fellow sister or a brother in Christ into our home, into our circle, into our life, in any way, we're to do it with the posture of hospitality and kindness, just like we would do with Jesus. Can you imagine? I, I, my, the image I get in my mind is Jesus wants us to think, okay, I, I'm in a lineup of people that are coming to your house, to your little party. I want you to treat every person that enters your front door the exact same way you would treat me. Whoa. 
Because we would think that, okay, hey, it's great to have you here, great to hear Jesus. Oh, you have whatever you, no. He's saying treat everybody is just the way that you would treat me. This reflects really this powerful reality that we are one in Christ. I think we forget this. We live in such an individualistic society, don't we? So individualistic. And he's reminding his followers here, because he knows he's leaving soon, that this is not, you're not to be individualistic. You are part, you're going to be part of something so amazing, and it's not going to be like a social club. Okay, it's not 24-hour fitness. It is going to be something that is going to be amazing. And not only amazing, you're going to need it. You're going to desperately need it. So that's what he does here. The Apostle Paul says this. He says in Romans, he says, Just as our bodies have many parts and each part has a special function, so it is with Christ's body. We are many parts. We're many people, many gifts. But we all belong to each other. You belong to me. I belong to you. That, you see how that works? That's what he's saying. We belong to each other. When we entered the kingdom, we entered a family. Not that dis, not, maybe not the dysfunctional family you're thinking about, but we entered, we entered a family, so that's what he's saying here. Reality is, this, 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 just knowing this, this should have a tremendous impact on how we treat each other. You see what he's saying here? This should change the way you treat each other, especially even the people that you have a hard time with. Because it's easy, isn't it? Say, oh, brother, sister. Yeah, we think alike. Ooh, brother, sister. No, I'm not saying that. Because there's big consequences for us, both negative and positive, when we react differently to different people. Think about it. I mean, think about it. Think about it when someone lovingly embraces one of your children. Okay, I have four sons. When I, when I know when somebody when really wraps their arm around my sons or comes up and tells me, hey, I met your, one of your sons and he's just so great and all that, or, or they really kind to them and respect them, how does that make you feel when you hear that? That makes me feel so good because I'm connected to them. I, I love that. I love hearing you like my son. Yeah, oh, warms my heart. Think about the other side of that too. Think about the other side of that. You think about someone mistreats one of your children. A couple of my sons dealt pretty heavily with some bullying when they were younger. I tell you, that was hard. That was really, really hard. You see, we are so intimately connected to our children that the reality is that the way other people treat them has a profound impact on us, doesn't it? A profound impact. What Jesus is saying here is that because he is so intimately connected to his children, the way that we treat one another is the way that we treat him. Does that make sense? It's powerful. That is so powerful. We think, oh, it's okay. I can do, act however I want. They don't, you don't know what they've done to me. Whatever you say, ah, don't mess with one of my kids. You're one of my kids too. You know, don't mess. Once again, John MacArthur says this. He says, how you treat other believers is how you treat the Lord who lives in other believers. That's the foundation principle for relations in the church. Now, Jesus gives us the negative. Now he goes to the negative side, okay, and how to treat a brother and sister. Look at verse 6. 
<laughs> we go verse by verse here. Um, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin, it would be better for him to take a great millstone, fasten it around his neck, and be drowned in the depths of the sea. So he says here that to cause them to sin, to cause people, these people to sin or to stumble is to fall into sin. It has dire consequences. We see the warning here, though, is that these little ones that he's talking about to sin, they're just like a child. That's what he's talking about. These little ones are those who have humbly put their faith in Jesus. He's talking about the same people, okay? Those who have a childlike humility and dependence on God. So he says that when you cause them to sin or to stumble, that has dire consequences. Kind of picture of a millstone. I know what a millstone is. This millstone um, is the top stone of two stones between the grain that was crushed. It was so heavy, this big thing, it required a donkey or a mule pulling it to actually turn it to make it happen. So the picture, here's this picture. Picture this. You're out in the ocean, okay? You're out in the deep, way out, I mean, way out in the ocean. I'm not talking anywhere close. And you notice he says deep out there. He says way out there, the depths of the sea, okay? And you got this big old stone hanging around your neck, this big old giant thing, and you just say, here we go, and you fling yourself overboard. That would be a quick trip to the bottom, wouldn't it? And you'd stay there. That's what he's saying. What Jesus is saying is before you cause a fellow brother or sister in Christ to stumble into sin, you might as well die a ridiculously horrible death. Wow. What an image. What an image that is. You might as well just hang it up. It might as, be, might as well be terrible for you. That's how serious this is to Jesus. Jesus doesn't just use these hyper, hyperbole just to like get us to think, oh yeah, millstone. I wonder what that would be like to get him. No, the idea is how radical and how drastic and how important it is to Jesus that this would happen. You see, here's the, here's the thing. God isn't concerned solely and only with our own individual sin. He's not just concerned with us not sinning and us not falling into sin, okay? But he's also concerned with how we would cause other people to fall into sin, okay? That's what he's saying here. He's not only concerned that we ourselves don't sin, okay? But he's concerned that we don't cause other people to stumble and to fall into sin themselves, See, all believers are tremendously important and precious and loved by God. He will not, the reality is God's not going to take kindly to anyone who causes any of them to fall into sin or to be led astray. We need to take care to watch over each other. That's what our, we are supposed to be doing that. We're supposed to be caring for one another. Remember, we are one. We are all part of this family. That gives us a tremendous responsibility towards one another. And really the reality is we can cause each other to sin or to stumble in countless ways. There's so many ways that that can happen. I mean, we could, it could include something like you know, commiserating or sympathizing with someone in, in their hatred or their anger or their resentment or their gossip or lying. You ever had someone come to you and they, oh, you don't know what, you, you know, what they have done. I don't understand it. This really sounds ter- terrible. They have hurt me so bad. And we go, oh, yeah. Yeah, what else? You know, and we kind of feed that. 
That's, help, that's causing someone to fall into sin. Okay, we're not helping them. Yeah, we're feeding this. We're feeding the temptation for them to pursue that sin instead of helping them to be free from it. That's what we should be doing. Helping them to be free, not helping them feed it. Now, we want to be empathetic and listen to them and things like that. But the last thing we want to do is be a partakers in causing that sin, that, that temptation that they have to hang on to that anger or that resentment to just feed it, water it. And I mean, you might just, you know, go watch a Kardashian show or something. Just go do that or something. I mean, go watch something that's going to watch people. Blah. That's not what we're called to do. We're supposed to be, we're supposed to be different. Or something else. How about provoking someone to be angry? I mean, remember, you know, in the Bible, it even talks about fathers. Don't provoke your children to anger. Don't make them angry. Don't do things. Don't act in a certain way that over time, after a while, they're going to build up anger and they're going to build up resentment for you. Whether it's either by, you know, smothering them or, you know, making them overachieve or, you know, all the different things that, you, that does that. I've told you this before. One, my biggest fault in this area, I was a yeller. I tend to every once in a while when things, I would, when I finally got out of control, four boys in the house going a little crazy. Oh, thank God it was only boys though. Um, I would, I could, I could lose my top a little bit and yell at it. And I realized that I had to talk to my sons about that. We made it, we made it very open in our house to be able to talk about it and for them to vent their frustration about that. Because what I was doing is I was causing them to be angry. I was causing them to be resentful towards me. Does that make sense? So we had to work through that. This is what Jesus is talking about. And we also do it. Here's the other side of this. We also cause people to sin and to fall into sin when we fail to give spiritual encouragement or correction or direction when we have the opportunity to do it. Even though it might be difficult to do. James 4.17 says, so whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him, what? Sin. How often do we know that we need to confront a brother or sister? We know that because we are one, because we're responsible for each other, we know we need to say something hard. We know that we need to say something difficult. We know that we need to come alongside them and do something that could actually even fracture the relationship so we don't do it. So you know what? I don't, want, I don't like conflict, so I'm just not going to deal with that. That's another way of causing people to sin. If something needs to be addressed in, in my life, you see something in my life, you better talk to me. I need that. I desperately want that. And I hope you do too. To have people that will speak into our life, say, Rob, and I've had that. Thankfully, I've had people say, Rob, what you just said, that was, that was not a really good thing to say. You know, you shouldn't be talking like that. Uh, you know, you're right. And it came from a heart of love, though. Not like, ooh, who can I go? <laughs> I'm, the, I'm the religious police. You know, I'm going to go find brothers and sisters that are messing up because I need a job. You know, no, that's not what he's talking about. Because no, we love each other. We care for each other. If we see that happening, we need to ask God and the Holy Spirit for strength and courage to do that with each other. Conflict avoidance. Get rid of conflict avoidance. Okay? It's a, that's a nasty word. Phrase. Whatever. It's not where we are supposed to be. Now, we don't look for it, but we're willing to be in it. 
And here's the, here's the reality, you guys. If we're truly as a church, as we're developing our, our vision and our mission and our core values and all that here, as we're developing all that, I hope that the, one of the big things that we will be about our church is that we will be a place where people will feel like they belong to a place where they are being cared for and people are coming alongside them and they can share their hurts, they can share their pains, they can share where they're tripping up and where they're messing up and where they're falling short, knowing that they will be encouraged, that they will be loved, they will be Kicked a little bit, but all in love. That's what we want this kind of a place to be. Because that's how we grow in Christ. That's how we have a church that's making an impact, not only on the people in it, but the entire community. And that's what we want to do. That's the kind of church we need to be. All right. Now, Jesus continues to talk about this impact that we are to have on each other, especially in this area of uh, causing each other to sin. Yet in do- now, now, in doing so, he wants us to understand that in order to be able to keep from causing others to sin or to fall into sin, we need to see the importance of taking drastic measures to eradicate sin in our own lives. This is where that whole thing of being proud, going, I'm the religious police, this is where he kills that. Because he knows they're probably thinking, all right, you want me to help? And he's going, okay, wait a second. Look at verse 7. Look what he says. He says, Woe to the world for temptations to sin, for it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one whom the temptations come. Actually, I, like, I prefer the NIV says this. It says, woe to the world because of the things that cause people to stumble. Such things must come, but woe to the person through whom they come. The reality is we know this. We live in a fallen and broken world due to sin and really the far-reaching yet limited control of our enemy, Satan. We know that. We know that. Really, so living in this world means that it's inevitable that you and I will stumble. You and I will sin. I don't think I have to convince any of you that you sin. We do. We fall. We make mistakes. We fall short of God's incredible standards. Okay, but this does not lessen the responsibility that you and I carry for causing another believer to stumble. We can't just, I'm just broken. Sorry. I mean, I'm just broken. And no, that doesn't give us the right to be able to say that we know we're going to sin. If anything, this reality should cause us to want to do anything and everything possible to passionately pursue a life of holiness. Do you want to be holy? Do you want to be who God wants to be? This is one of the great ways to be motivated to do this so that I don't cause my fellow brothers and sisters to sin, okay? Saying to remove anything from our lives that may cause others to stumble in sin. And Jesus goes on now and tells us how. Here's how, because when they say, hey, stop that, go, okay, I'll try. No, here's how, here's how you do it. And he's going to use some extremely graphic and dramatic language. Look what he says in verses 8 and 9. Ooh, it took two verses at a time. Look at it. It says, if your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or feet to be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than two eyes be thrown into the hell of fire. Whew. Pretty graphic. 
See what Jesus does? He uses this, like, just, like, like, just like back in chapter 5, remember he was talking about lust? If you look at a woman, you know, tear out your eye. Just, just, Jesus is using that same hyperbole or exaggeration to illustrate the idea of eliminating at any and all cost anything that would cause us to be ensnared or to be enslaved in sin. In his classic work, um, well, actually, first of all, the principle here is drastic action must be taken in order to eradicate sin. Drastic action must be taken to eradicate sin. I can't emphasize that point enough because I think that oftentimes we want to stop sinning, but we're not willing to take the drastic action that we need to do to eradicate that sin. In his classic work, Mortification of Sin, Puritan theologian John Owen writes this. He says, do you mortify? Now, mortify, which means put something to death or destroy the, the strength or the power of it. He says, do you mortify? Do you make it your daily work? Be always at it whilst you live. Cease not a day from this working. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. That is powerful. We got to remember that. I got to be killing this. One ways that one of the ways that I know for me that I've learned to uh, deal with certain sin that I had dealt with over time and over time is really to asking God and trying to require an absolute hatred for it to dis- to help me. God help me to despise to, to absolutely hate that sin, and that helps. Now it would, seem, it would seem like now Jesus has kind of drifted away from this whole subject of causing other people to sin. He seems like, oh, wait a second, I thought we were talking about other people. But now he seems like he's talking about it. But the, here's the deal. The reality is that in taking drastic action against the temptations to sin that you and I faced really is the best way of preventing ourselves from causing other people to sin. Does that make sense? As we destroy, as we mortify, as we work hard to get rid of that stuff, there's going to be a lot less chance that we cause other people to stumble into sin. Really, the guys, what he's saying here, the bottom line is personal holiness is a serious matter. Personal holiness is a serious matter. What Jesus is telling us here that what we do privately can and will have a tremendous Effect. Okay, I, I jumped. I jumped. No, no, that's where I am. It will have a tremendous impact. Can it will have a tremendous impact on those on other believers? We can't feel like we live in this little bubble. Okay. Our personal holiness matters, and what we do privately will affect others. One commentator I read this week says this: How you see things, the eye, affects how others see. What you do, the hand affects others will do. And how you walk, the foot, affects how others will walk. That's the impact we have here. The reality is that there's no such thing. Hear me now. There is no such thing as private sin. Okay? Our sin impacts others. Okay? As the saying goes, no man is an island. Sin is never strictly a personal act. Ooh, I got away with it. Never. It never is. It always has impact on the lives of others. When I sin, it impacts my wife. It impacts my children. 
It impacts others that are involved in my life, that are around me. There's this ripple effect. We think that, oh, I'm hiding it. I'm all good. No one's impacting it. That's not the truth. That is not the case. That's what the enemy wants us to be like. Okay, I can look at all that stuff and I can indulge in all that stuff or I can be this way because it's only hurting me. Mm -mm. That's not what Jesus is saying here. That's not possible. That is not possible. I mean, take example of guilt. Like when we sin, we blow, we know we've done wrong and we feel guilt. Just practically, when we experience guilt, often what do we experience? Things like stress, we can't sleep at night, uh, you know, we get depressed, we get irritable. Does that not affect the people around us? This is just a, one of the practical ways. That affects the people around us. And then what that does, it affects the people around them. It's like that old adage, you know, the, you get the dad at work, it's yelled at, comes home, yells at the kid, kid kicks the dog, kicks the dog. You know, it, it, just, it just keeps going down the line. That's what, he's, that's what he's saying here. When I sin, I know it's going to impact. I know, but I think in my so often, no, I can handle this. You know, when we try, another, another way is when we try to live with hidden sin, we can become dishonest with ourselves, okay? When with other people, we feel like, okay, they don't know. This is who I am. They think this is who I am. No way. Listen to what Nathaniel Hawthorne, novelist Nathaniel Hawthorne once said. Uh, I don't know if he was much of a biblical scholar or not. But he says, no man for any considerable period can wear one face to himself and another to the multitude without finally getting bewildered as to which may be the true. So true. And you know what? It's exhausting, isn't it? Isn't it exhausting to live a double life? Even if it's just a small double life, it's exhausting. And believe me, you are having an impact on people, especially we're talking about the family of God here. We're talking about brothers and sisters in Christ. We have a connection with other. We are one. We are in Christ. That means that we have an impact on one another. So stop thinking, is what Jesus is saying here, stop thinking that in any way what you're doing, your sin, your falling short of God's standard is only impacting you. He says, stop thinking that way. It's not, it's not true. And what we see here is the action that he lays out by Jesus. It's immediate, it's decisive, and it's absolute, isn't it? His message is clear. We're to take care or deal with our sin as a means of watching out for our brothers and sisters Christ. Well, as we end here, let me ask you, are you aware of your tendencies toward pride, toward self-seeking ambition, uh, your desire for uh, prominence, for status, for recognition? Jesus' message is loud and clear. Cut it off. Cut it off. Are you prone to anger, jealousy, holding a grudge, gossip, gluttony, stinginess, laziness, whatever, a number of sins. The message is clear. Cut it off. Deal with them for the sake of jeopardizing not only your own life, but the life of your brothers and sisters in Christ, because we are one. So it seemed to reason how important it is that we are continually asking the Lord. I was doing this last night. After I worked out last night, I was just really impressed. Okay, if I'm going to speak about this, I need to do this. I think it really behooves us as followers of Jesus to continually be asking the Lord to reveal to us our sin in anything, okay? Our sin in anything that might or might not be causing other people to stumble. 
other people to sin. There might something we might be doing or not be doing that we should be doing that could possibly possibly cause a brother or sister to stumble. Yes. No. Yeah, it's not meant to be taken literally. This is hyperbole. That's a great question. That's what I love about a small church. We ask questions in the middle of the service. I love it. Anybody else? No, no. Uh, uh, it's Q&A time. And no, thanks, Carrie, for that. I really appreciate that. It's true. He's using hyperbole because obviously he's not talking about going into heaven or going to hell with a hand missing. No, what he's trying to do here is just explain how drastic this is, how powerful, how important this is. Don't take this as something that's minor. Think of it as getting, think of it as losing, willingness to lose a limb. You need to be going, you need to be willing to go that far to lose a limb, lose an eye, whatever, in order to protect yourself and your brothers and sisters in Christ. Are we seeing the important message of how we're supposed to be with one another? It is so powerful. So asking ourselves, God, I, was, I remember that's like, God, what in my life? Where's the sin in my life? Where are the things that I should be doing or should, I'm not doing that might be causing someone else to fall in sin? And really, this is a huge step. That's a huge step towards childlike humility, the very characteristic that characterizes greatness in the kingdom of heaven. Let's pray. Father God, Thank you for your word. It is so powerful, so convicting, so encouraging. I just want to pray and ask, God, that you would help us as your followers, Jesus, to be willing to allow your spirit to work in us in a way that is willing to not only just try hard, to not sin, not that, God, but we would allow you to work in our lives, to transform our lives for our sake and for the sake of others, for the sake of those around us. We all want to be a part of a church that's healthy. We want to be a part of a church that encourages. We want to be a part of a church that builds us up, that reaches the community, but we can't unless we are functioning how you want us to, God. So help us, help me, help us all to function as you want us to, Father, humbly, humbly loving you, but also being determined to eradicate sin and allow you to do amazing work in our lives. We pray it in your son's name. Amen. You guys want to stand and we'll close.